Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. It's hard to imagine a world where we leave future generations with fewer rights and freedoms. Since the Supreme Court's decision to overturn Roe v. Wade, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills aimed at blocking people from getting the essential sexual and reproductive care they need, including abortion. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves access to care. And with supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just Visible. Switch today at Visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see Visible.com. I might like get a job at Kinko's or something to to make ends meet. Kinko's? Kinko's hasn't existed for years. (laughs) It is a division of FedEx, and you know that, Matt. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds on the Vox Media Podcast Network. I'm Matthew Iglesias, here with ProPublica's Dara Lynn and Vox's own Dylan Matthews. Um, we're sort of sitting around in Washington, uh, continuing to await news of whether Congress will do anything additional on, on COVID relief, but at least on the presumption that they don't. Dylan wrote a, a really good story recently about the poverty situation that a Biden administration is going to be facing come the new year. And it's not it's not a good situation, right? It's not great. So the takeaway, uh, and this is based on work that a team at Columbia um, at the Center for Poverty and Social Policy did, is that somewhere between 5 to 12 million more people will be in poverty in January 2021 than were in January 2020. And that's coming after a a kind of strange year for poverty numbers that uh, we had this massive expansion of unemployment benefits uh, that started in April, uh, which some people have called the super dole. And it it was quite super. It appears to have reduced poverty in April and May, uh, even from where it was pre-pandemic. But since that and the uh, stimulus checks kind of wore off and expired at the end of July, uh, the reverse has happened. You've seen a deterioration of living standards uh, to the point where I asked this team at Columbia to project for various unemployment rates what poverty would look like. And their projection for 5% unemployment, which would be a big improvement. We're about at 6.7% unemployment now. So that would be a really big improvement to get by January. They're finding we would have 4 million more people in poverty. So let's let's... Go back over this because I think I think some of our springtime media coverage was not was not so good in in retrospect, right? What what happened in March and April is tons of businesses were shutting down. There were very severe, you know, in retrospect, just excessively severe restrictions. Like furniture stores in my neighborhood were, were shut down. Tons of people lost their jobs. GDP cratered. I wrote a story about it. It was like the largest decline in GDP ever. But at that time, Congress stepped in with the CARES Act, which was, in fact, so generous that 
most people who lost their jobs were made whole, and some people were made more than whole by the CARES Act, especially people at the lower end. People who had previously been like the working poor now became like the unemployment insurance non-poor. Right? I mean, is that the the basic picture? That's the basic picture. Um, Yeah, I think we were very used to a situation from the 2008 recession where there's this big economic calamity and Congress passes a bill that can tackle like a half of it or like... uh, Two thirds of it, maybe if you're lucky. And this was a a unprecedented in my lifetime situation in which Congress actually did more than seemed strictly necessary, which is good. Um, and they weren't just trying to do stimulus. I think the rationale and the reason a lot of conservative Republicans voted for it was if you're telling businesses that they kind of have to shut down, you got to pay them for it. Um, that you can't just ask them to shut down out of the goodness of their hearts. That's one of those unfunded mandates that people like to complain about. And so, yeah, you had this uh, the situation where both the benefits for for businesses in terms of PPP loans, the the payroll protection program, but especially unemployment benefits were, were very, very generous, but only for a time. Well, and also that's different from the 2009 ARA approach in which they they extended unemployment eligibility. So, you know, they were like trying to prevent with UI like a mass starvation type situation. But the idea was to stimulate the economy, like back into well-being, sometimes with, you know, FDR nostalgia kind of ideas, sometimes with business tax cuts. But the idea was like that money would be used on something. And then that something would lead to job creation. And then that job creation would lead the unemployed to having higher incomes versus CARES directed like a huge dump truck of money at people who had lost their jobs. And so it worked great. But now, like, the dump truck is gone. Can we actually talk a little bit more directly about kind of the 2008 economic crisis and and what, you know, what we've seen in like the years following that? Because really, as somebody who was, you know, coming into the job market around that time, it was really remarkable to watch how quickly everything fell apart and how slow and then how long it took for us to, to have anywhere near a complete understanding of what that had done. Like, you know, one of the benefits of looking for white papers is that you see how much economists have been able to kind of take advantage of looking at some of the stuff around the 2008 crisis because it's, you know, <laughs> it's a useful discontinuity, but it it's still, you know, I not fully understood. And I think that there isn't a good public understanding of just what the long-term effects of that crash were. So, you know, I, folks who have read a lot more economics than I have, like, how would you summarize that? And what lessons do you think that should have had for how we tackled this time? Well, I think Matt's done a lot of thinking about this. So I, I want to hear his thoughts. The thing that I think we've learned about 2008 um, and that's most different from this crisis, and that I think is is a difference I've thought a lot about, is there was nothing, like, wrong with, like, the American workforce and businesses such that the 2009 economy could not have performed the way the 2006 economy did. John McCain got in a lot of trouble in 2008 for saying that the fundamentals of the economy are sound, uh, which is a dumb thing to say if you're a presidential candidate running in the midst of a massive economic catastrophe. But I think it had like an important bit of truth to it, which is that 
things were going along and there were some imbalances and the, the housing sector was, was growing at an unsustainable rate, probably. And the finance sector was behaving irresponsibly, but it was, it was a shortfall of demand. People panicked, people weren't spending. And we tried to come up with all these things that were wrong with the economy to explain why we weren't recovering fast enough. Like there's a skills mismatch. People aren't, aren't skilled enough. Uh, people are playing video games too much. But really, in retrospect, it was just people panicked. There wasn't enough demand. And they just like needed people to get them back on track. What's really different and strange about the current recession is that there really is a reason why economic activity in April could not be what it was in January, which is that like you can't run restaurants. Or at the very least, you shouldn't run restaurants <laughs> the way that you tr- uh, conventionally do. And so... There's this dual purpose of relief and stimulus, which sometimes get conflated, which is not the worst conflation in the world. A lot of the things you want to do are similar, but they are different. And I think it it matters for evaluating success. Um, I'm writing a piece about Japan right now. And there's a lot of articles that that suggest, you know, well, they they kept their employment rate down to like 3%. But on the other hand, they had this big GDP collapse. And in 2008, that would be bad. And now I think it's like quite good. <laughs> like it's good, it's good that they, they, they reduced their economic activity by doing fewer things that spread the coronavirus. And it's good that they did that while preventing people from uh, having sort of mass humanitarian problems. But uh, I'll let Matt chime in here. You know, I, I think the, like the story of the 2009 recession still is getting like written and, and rewritten. In an interesting way, I thought, Obama's memoir is an important point on this because, you know, he's now had a number of years in which to think about what he wants to say about this. And he does say very clearly in the memoir that his view is that the 2008 crash revealed unsustainable structural vulnerabilities in the economy and that he his mission was to pivot us into some better direction. Now, he sometimes said things like that during his presidency, uh, but he also sometimes said different things. And while it was nowhere near a Trump level of different advisors or all over the map, like, you know, different people had different opinions, which is sort of normal. But here we got the president's considered view was that just throwing money at people would not have been like a correct or adequate response to the situation, uh, which I think helps explain why they didn't just throw a ton of money at people. I mean, there's other stuff, you know, the blue dogs, the Republicans, blah, 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 blah. blah. But like he himself did not like think you should do that. And that's why the stimulus bill had money to create electronic records in the medical system. It's why it had the loan program that Republicans dunked on as Solyndra, but that now, you know, the smart progressive take is it helped launch a battery revolution. So that's all good stuff. And the CARES Act didn't have anything like that, right? There's going to be no, like 10 years later, the legacy of the CARES Act kind of stories. But it turns out that just treating the lack of money as the problem is pretty efficacious. I mean, like that's that's a, like the point of any of these. This Columbia Group does a lot of uh, 
good good work with with Dylan and Vox. Um, like the moral of the story is always that if you give money to low income people, it reduces poverty a lot. Um, <laughs> but it tends to arise through these like weird backhanded situations, like ah, it's a pandemic, special circumstances, right? Or they did a thing with me about about a Biden housing proposal that I think is like not going to become law, but if it's implemented, will have a drastic impact on poverty. And that was just not the Obama administration's focus. They believed that to promote a strong economy required a more complicated kind of story. I mean, I hope Congress does something. But most of all, like I hope that we take seriously the fact that targeted relief to the most afflicted does a lot in a humanitarian point of view. And that to some extent, like the economy, quote unquote, will take care of itself as people get vaccinated and, you know, other things like that. Right. There was this whole discourse in late spring of like reopening the economy, but like nothing. I don't know, like the economy didn't go away. What did happen is that businesses closed because they didn't have access to credit. And now we see people lining up at food banks because they don't have any money. But it's like, I don't know when, right? You have to ask Dr. Fauci or somebody, but like June or August or September or whatever, like more people will be on planes. Hotels will be back up to full staff. People will be getting their tips. Like, that's fine. And the question is like, well, between now and then, like, do people go hungry? Are people out on the streets? Can people heat their homes this winter? Right. I mean, I think that the 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 between now and then does then affect what happens to folks in the post, you know, in, in, in the post kind of vaccine world, right? Like, so much of what we've what we've seen in the ongoing work around the 2008 crisis is how much longer it took the most deeply impacted sectors of the populace to like recover or how, you know, how impossible it was for them to recover. Uh, This is seen in kind of in the, you know, if you, if you decompose employment by gender, if you decompose it by race, certainly like black household wealth got destroyed to a much more, you know, long-term extent than white household wealth didn't. So, you know, there is, and this is, I think, a lot of what I've been thinking about is just as somebody who, you know, has spent a lot of time looking at thinking about like kind of the long-term effects of immigration enforcement, which is something that like, you're not going to see an obvious, you know, discontinuity on or like a kind of nationwide crisis in the same way, but that can, you know, that that is as an underappreciated source of childhood stress. It's going to be very interesting to see how much we can even going forward figure out what the effects of all of this on you know, on on the families that are lining up at food banks are. And there's the question of like, what can be done to prevent that from happening, which is where Matt, I actually think it's, you know, the irony is that if there were ongoing relief, there probably would be a 10 year symposium on the the impact of the CARES Act, given what Dylan was talking about at the beginning of the episode. So it kind of does depend very much on what Congress does now. But uh, it certainly does seem that what we have, even in the in the interim is a kind of great uncertainty, you know, which which itself appears to be a problem for people who are literally 
waiting to know whether they're going to be getting checks in the mail that will help them pay their rent. Yeah, that is something that I I don't know if I've changed my view on, but that I've I've thought a lot more about this time around than last time around, that there was a, a big discourse in 2009, 2010 around uh, sort of business uncertainty or regulatory uncertainty. The argument being that businesses felt like there was such a barrage of changes from the Obama administration, from the stimulus to, to Obamacare to Dodd-Frank, that they couldn't plan for anything and, and that that was hampering their recovery. I was really skeptical at the time, in part because it was pretty clear what Obama wanted to do, and it wasn't clear whether he would succeed, but you could kind of do some planning around it. And most of the things he wanted to do were on a delay. Um, The stimulus was immediate, but Obamacare started in 2014. They had four years to prepare. A lot of Dodd-Frank phased in. This time around, it's not just business uncertainty, it's like individual and family uncertainty. So, like, for example, one of the benefits of really generous unemployment uh, insurance, and this is something Raj Chetty wrote about over a decade ago, is that they improve matching. So let's say Vox lays me off tomorrow. Please do not do this, Vox. If I have no savings and, like, desperately need to do something, I might, like, get a job at Kinko's or something to to make ends meet. That's not a really good match. I don't think I would be... I don't think I would be yes, a you know, good... Kinko's thriving, hasn't existed for years. The thriving in-person <laughs> printing sector of the economy. I will actually say, though, that as as somebody who, is lack, who has lacked access to a printer for the last several months, that like a contact-free Kinko's pop-up would probably do pretty good money. Probably good money. Good money. The company I'll bring doesn't exist. D- it is a division of FedEx, and you know that, Matt. Um, but... <laughs> I so I go to work at FedEx Kinkos. I'm not a good employee. I'm not good at customer service. It's not a good use of whatever debatable talents I might have in policy d- analysis. But if I have a longer term unemployment benefit, uh, I can do some interviews. I can get a job at a think tank or another publication or whatever. So that like that's a real benefit of having more generous longer term unemployment insurance. And when you don't know if you're going to have more generous um, longer-term unemployment insurance and you're laid off, you don't know if you should you should sort of keep searching or, or uh, keep trying to match with a place that would make the best use of your talents. Um, and that's like a real economic cost. I would say in addition to that like specific uncertainty, we also have right now the um, sort of goal uncertainty, Right. We're like, it seemed like the philosophy of the CARES Act was that unemployment insurance was going to be so generous because the attitude was really going to be like, no harm, no foul. Like, we're just we're shutting off these sectors of the economy. And we just like we want you to have your money. Like, we're not even trying to help you, quote unquote. Like, it, it's it's just sort of how it's going. Then once we moved into the reopening dialogue. There's this like incredible push and pull where a lot of policymakers are saying like, no, like we want to get the we want to pump up the GDP numbers. We want you to go go get that job in, in food service. Um, but then we still have all the public health people running around being like, no, 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 don't do that. And you have in the in the blue states, especially the like crazy dissonance of like, wear a mask while you're walking your dog, but please come to the bar now. (laughs) And it's hard to make policy to pursue incoherent objectives. And still, it's like, I, I, I just want to get people in need money because I think at this point, 
Like we're clearly not containing the virus in any meaningful way, but we are starting to vaccinate people, which is good. But hopefully we can avoid, you know, malnourished children for the next six months. But, you know, going way back, it would have been better to think more. Like CARES had this time limit on it, which was not triggered by anything in particular. It was just a date on the calendar. Whereas, you know, what you would want to say is, okay, we have a declaration of national emergency around the pandemic for as long as that is in effect. If you could redo the whole thing, you maybe make the bonus UI a little bit smaller to create, you know, fairness with the essential workers. And then you do like a tax cut of some kind for the people who you are saying have to work under hazardous conditions. But then you would say the whole thing, like it lasts until whatever, right? It lasts until the CDC says we're back to normal and not just like it lasts till August. And then we hope Congress works something out because now we're, we're riven by like conceptual disagreement as well as partisanship. See, I, I would say that there wasn't conceptual agreement to begin with. Like, I, you know, the theory of the CARES Act wasn't that it was ongoing relief to support a pan, you know, to support a shutdown of the economy during a pandemic, right? It was based on the kind of public health slash policy narrative that if the country took an aggressive shutdown approach at the beginning, spent that time establishing good supply chains, ramping up PPE provision, ramping up like ventilator provision, because that's where our epidemiological understanding was at the time, and learned enough about the virus to figure out how we could safely reopen, then it would be possible to, right. you know, to, so, so like, so th- Six the, weeks the kind of the reopening the economy push was to a certain extent an expiration of patience or you know or rather or an understanding that because that all of the kind of ramping up PPE and developing capacity things hadn't happened this spring that it was now a question of should we wait indefinitely until either the government gets its act together on capacity on capacity building or there's a vaccine and both in terms of kind of for from the perspective of what a business owner would be looking at from the perspective of what a politician is going to be saying and from the simple human you know psychology perspective it's been very difficult to deal with this as it's become clear that we're talking about months or years and we don't know how long it's you know we're going to be in a, in a state of exception so it does seem to me that you could make an argument. I don't know if this is how it's going to play out, but we are now in a situation much more similar to where we thought we were in March than where we actually were in March, right? Where, yes, there is a period, like we're in a period of extreme epidemiological danger right now, but there is an end date on that. We don't know exactly when that end date is because of like, again, capacity building and vaccine distribution. But it does seem that if you wanted to kind of make the push to people who had been on kind of team reopen, team let the, you know, the most important thing you can do is make sure that more businesses don't close for the last several months, you could say, okay, we promise this is only going to be a thing for a few more months. This isn't like our long-term running government plot to get everybody on welfare all the time. But we really need to make a big push because there's a light at the end of the tunnel. Let's take a break. And, and then I want to I talk about the recovery phase of this a little bit. 
Support for The Weeds comes from Not Another Politics podcast from the Harris School of Public Policy. With the constant news cycle, there's a lot of noise out there. Opinions are plastered all over social media, pundits are throwing out hot takes without any sort of context, and it's only getting worse as we dive farther into election season. We know that if you're listening to us at The Weeds, you're looking to cut through all this. And if you like this show, you might like Not Another Politics Podcast. Not Another Politics Podcast is produced by the University of Chicago Harris School of Public Policy. They want to take a research and data approach to analyzing hot-button issues and offer perspectives that go beyond the headlines. They cover a wide variety of topics in their episodes, but a few recent episodes that you can listen to include a deep dive into why women are underrepresented in U.S. politics or whether or not we can believe political surveys. You can listen and subscribe today at harris.uchicago.edu slash nap. That's N-A-P-P. Support for this podcast comes from Planned Parenthood. Your body is your own. That's why Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Today, lawmakers who oppose abortion are challenging Planned Parenthood. Affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. Planned Parenthood believes that health care is a basic human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies. They also work tirelessly to oppose the onslaught of new policies aimed at interfering with personal decisions best left to patients and their doctors. They won't give up, and they won't back down. You can join Planned Parenthood in the fight to help make sure that the next generation can decide their own futures. The organization needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, they can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future to learn more and support their cause. So, you know, Darren mentioned earlier the sort of incredible uh, wealth impacts of the Great Recession that impacted Black and white households very differently and, you know, fundamentally stem from the divergence between the stock market and the housing market, right? So that people who own stock, which is mostly rich people, mostly white people, did fine over, you know, not in 2009, but over the course of the recovery, the stock market came back very strongly. Uh, but people who had made highly leveraged uh, mortgage investments, which was a disproportionately African-American group, came out really badly from the recession. And there's some neighborhood-specific effects and, and other things like that, but you can just see two lines on a chart going in, in very different directions. An interesting thing about this pandemic is that even as we have you know, like increased shoplifting of food and basic baby supplies and, and other things like that. The typical American household's wealth has gone up. Uh, if you look up, you know, how much money do people just have in their bank accounts? Uh, it's up. Housing values are up. The stock market is also up. And in all of these things, you know, the stock market is not the economy. Most stock is owned by a wealthy minority of people. But a majority of Americans are invested in the stock market. A majority of Americans own homes. A majority of Americans continue to be employed during this pandemic. So it's not to downplay the poverty that Dylan is talking about, but actually to highlight it that during the Great Recession, 
poverty went up as part of a generalized immiseration. I got poorer during the Great Recession. I was not like the victim of the Great Recession, but it was a general downward motion. And that's not the case now, right? Like we have the risk of just forgetting about you know, people in need. Or there's incredible political enthusiasm for the give everybody $1,200 thing, which would make, if everybody had lost 10% of their income, just giving everybody money, I think would be a really, not just like politically appealing, but fair way to address it. But like the typical person has more money than they had a year ago. Like give the money to to people who who need it you know, is is a much more sort of significant, uh, particularly because I think the economy will really boom next year, because unlike in the Great Recession, there's a lot of sort of cash on hand. I was concerned at the beginning that it's like, first, we would close restaurants because of the virus. And then when the virus was gone, nobody would eat out because they'd all be broke. But like, actually, most people have been cooking more at home they like have the money. And when people say like, you can go to your favorite bar, like they're just going to go like, and and like, that's all good. But it means we really have to take care of people who are who are left behind. This is what you, you were saying about the forward looking projections, Dylan, right? Like you could have a good recovery and actually still a very severe problem. Exactly. And I think some of that is just the the nature of, of this recession and the nature of it being partly determined by public health outcomes. Uh, So there are a couple of interesting sources here. The Team Opportunity Insights at Harvard does this sort of real-time tracker of economic conditions, looking at sort of zip codes uh, based on income, and see something that that sort of matches what what Biden's advisors call a K-shaped recovery, where basically any reduction in in income for people in, in the top income group, which uh, soberingly for us is like over 60,000 a year in wages and are doing fine and are seeing incomes go up a little bit. And in the bottom group, below 27,000 a year in wages are substantially down. And if you dig into that by sector, it kind of looks like you would expect it to look based on what is shut down. Nick Bunker, who's a, an economist I, I like a lot on Twitter, was digging into the the occupations that have lost the most jobs Movies have lost 40% of their employment. The performing arts and spectator sports are down 37%. Travel agents down 32%. Accommodation down 30%. It's like, that makes sense. Like, it's hard to make movies uh, when you're uh, you're at risk of infecting everybody. It's no one wants to go to a hotel. Certainly no one is calling a travel agent for like an extravagant travel experience. And... That's just very different from 2008. As as Matt said, everyone was a little bit poor. Like housing was worse off than like Facebook, but on average, everyone got worse off. And I think that matters for poverty in part because a lot of the sectors that are doing poorly employ a lot of lo- low-wage workers. There are a lot of, of, of maids and wait staff at uh, hotels, uh, restaurants, bars, working at restaurants at airports. So if the pain is concentrated in those specific industries, it's not just that everyone gets like a 5% hit to their income. It's a few people get like a massive hit to their income, which is enough to knock them below whatever poverty threshold you're using. 
And you see that in a few things. There's a um, a team, uh, U Chicago's Bruce Meyer, uh, James Sullivan at Notre Dame, and uh, Ji Hoon Han, who's a, a Korean economist, have this tracker of, of poverty month to month. And one of the things they've found is that the relationship between unemployment and poverty has sort of changed. And this is sort of something I included in my article as a caveat to the, the Columbia data, which is based on this relationship between poverty and unemployment. But they're finding that that in some months, poverty went up even when unemployment fell. And that makes sense if uh, the unemployment and the sort of pain of this uh, recession is heavily concentrated on certain industries, such that a few people in a few industries go out of work and lose so much that they fall into poverty. And I think that that might be what we're seeing. And uh, that certainly translates into a case for more targeted relief. Um, I've written a lot about basic income over the years. And so I think it's like fun that Kamala Harris proposed before she was Biden's running mate. I don't know if she supports this anymore. 2000 bucks per month per member of every family. I would enjoy my wife and I getting 4000 bucks a month. I think that would be a cool social experiment and probably have all kinds of benefits. It doesn't seem necessary or like well designed for the specific problem. You really want to bring back the super doll. But then we kind of get into the, you know, age old question of the politics of the safety net, right? Like, if what we're dealing with is a lack of political consensus around the need to give any direct relief at all, on the one hand, there was so much money involved in the CARES Act. And like, you know, we're not even talking about uh, the kind of long term budgetary hit to the federal budget that came with like this massive dump truck that did not come with, you know, any kind of defense cuts or anything like that. But you can make the argument that you can't do that. The broader something is the less temporally sustainable it is. You could also make the argument that the more narrowly target something is, the less likely it is to happen at all because you're just not going to get enough people to get on board with only the notion that only some of us are hurting, especially this year. Like the effect of the pandemic is so noticeable on those of us who are not suffering great economic harm. Like we're the ones who are just staying at home all day. Like it's it's psychically miserable. And yet we are not the protagonists of this epi- of this pandemic. Uh, and so to tell people like us that you're not the ones who are really hurting right now is just not a super saleable message. I mean, there's somebody on every week, somebody on Twitter is like, the only thing the government did this whole pandemic is give us $1,200. And that reflects, it is true, if you neither lost your job nor own a business that has been hurt by coronavirus, all the government did is give you $1,200 for no reason. Um, but it's like, well, how much should the government have done for me, right? Like, I'm sitting in my bed, like, this sucks, but I don't know, like, I'm just in my basement, right? One of the pieces of the current congressional negotiations that I think is probably not getting as much play as it should be uh, because of this, like, whole how much money are you giving people debate is like, there are systems like public transit that really were hurt by the changes in behavior of people like us. And so there, there is, you know, there is an argument for like, in the, we might be the people who weren't suffering the economic harms that, you know, now might be, might actually see more real effects in future when with the things that weren't able to get back on track. Well, and so on my, uh, you know, award-winning uh, blog and newsletter, Slow Boring, I say that, you know, in, in the future, instead of having Congress spend all this money and take on all this debt, and then having the Fed buy a lot of debt 
on the market as quantitative easing and then having a lot of people being weird about it all the time. Like, you could do direct money creation, right? Like, in some sense, the technical details can be different, but like, in some sense, Jay Powell could send everybody $2,000, in which case it doesn't matter if most people don't spend the money because unspent created money doesn't cause inflation. This is there's this like goofy phrase helicopter money that people kick around that I think makes this whole thing seem loopier than it is. But like Milton Friedman's original point about this was that if somebody flew around in a helicopter and doubled the amount of cash lying around and everybody knew that that's what was happening and everybody got the exact same amount of cash, that there would be no economic effect because just all the money is worth half as much and everybody just goes on as before. What that has to do with anything, I think, is an interesting question. Uh, but the, but the point is, is that like there's no, there's no problem with giving people money they don't need if it comes out of thin air. They just, you know, put it in the mattress, right? Or you can donate it to charity or, you know, you can buy expensive headphones if you want. But like there's no reason to think there would be a huge inflationary surge if people got the extra money because we know that most people are actually just sitting around like not doing that much stuff. And next year there probably will be inflation, uh, not because of anything like goofy in the monetary system, but because like America's hotel chains are not going to triple their capacity because there's like a one-off summer when everybody wants to go on vacation. So there's just like, you know, restaurants, right? Like we're going to go from everybody eating out way less than they normally do to way more. And a clever restaurant owner who has managed to not lose his business it's going to be like, yeah, we're, we're jacking up prices. But like, that's not that's not a monetary issue. Exactly. Right. I mean, that's just going to be sort of pandemic after effects, although it's going to be interesting to see how the Fed navigates it, because there is going to be some pressure, I think, to kind of like pull the plug early on on recession, even while unemployment is still high. And like, that's where it comes back I think to to poverty and to the underprivileged is to say that like as weird stuff happens next year, you're gonna want a Federal Reserve leadership that just kind of stays the course. You've also got an article about this, Dylan. Yeah, I've been thinking a bit about about what the Fed could do. Um and it's it's tricky because with Congress, you can do both relief and stimulus. They can do things that are that are designed just to help people make it through right now and things that are meant to expand business investment, get businesses to hire more, get the economy more broadly back on track. And the Fed can kind of only do the second one. And one thing that's that's tricky right now is that you want to do that, but you don't want to do it in ways that worsen the pandemic. The vaccine simplifies this a lot. I know it's a hot take <laughs> that the vaccine is good. Yeah. But um, <laughs> but it, 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 it sort of clarifies what everyone ought to be doing. And if I'm Jay Powell right now, I might be like, the, the Fed has to work through these kind of attenuated mechanisms that that then transmit through a series of Rube Goldberg machines to affect the overall economy. <laughs> and it's not always clear how that's going to affect different segments of the economy as they relate to this novel virus that no one knew about a year ago. And so maybe if I twist this lever, 
suddenly everyone's going back to bars and everything goes to hell. Um, and I, I don't know that this is how uh, Jay Powell is thinking. If if uh, he told me what he thought every day, I would print it. But it seems like a, a reasonable worry. And you can't just give people money to keep them going. Um, there are these sort of exotic ways that really bend the meaning of the Federal Reserve Act that he could do. Brad DeLong, this economist at, at Berkeley, um, friend of friend of the podcast, I suppose, uh, has a, a plan where the Fed would name every American a bank uh, affiliated with the Federal Reserve and then would give them a line of credit and be clear that they are it is okay if they default on the line of credit. And that is a really convoluted way to like give everyone a bit of money. But like the Fed's not going to do that. <laughs> and I think the Fed does not consider that its job and considers anything that sort of gets close to people uh, in that way is not really its job. And so I think when that's the case and when they view their tools as interest rates and buying more debt, they're kind of stuck until we have a, a, a more conventional recovery situation where you just want to be getting businesses to hire and do more stuff as quickly as possible. But so the, the one thing, you know, you, you were joking, right? Like if Jay Powell told you what he thought every day, you would you would print it. I do think this is a situation where something useful he could do would be to start to actually communicate a little bit more about what he's thinking. Like I was looking at the most recent consumer price index report and the year on year, like the relative price changes in the economy are wild. Gas prices are down 20% uh, because people are not commuting as much. Used car sales are up 10%, both because it's gotten cheaper for sort of marginal people to get auto loans, uh, because production of new cars was disrupted for a couple of months in the springtime, so more people were pushed into it. Um, and also, at least in, in our handful of transit-oriented cities, uh, more people who were previously carless have decided to invest in, in automobiles. Apparel prices are down 5%, uh, which I assume is mostly because people aren't like dressing up to go out, right? Everybody's like, fashion is probably on pause somewhat. And clothing retailers are a little desperate uh, to try to get you to to buy things. Easier to tell knockoffs, uh, <laughs> harder to tell knockoffs via Zoom, I suppose. Yeah, um, exactly. <laughs> um, so you only really need tops anyway. Right. <laughs> no pants. Um, grocery prices have surged because uh, people are cooking more for themselves. But restaurant prices first cratered and now are spiking because I don't know. I, I don't actually know why. Presumably because they're trying to stay open as businesses while operating with a reduced customer base. Right. And so increasing. Like, and, and I guess you figure sense. at a certain point, it's like you're marketing to psychos who don't care about the pandemic. So you might as well charge them. I mean, I, I don't really know. Um, transportation services, which I think is mostly plane tickets, is way down. Um, so this is like all going to change again next year, right? And I think like one of the best things Powell could say is like, I am very worried about the large number of jobless people right now. I am very impressed by the benefits of low unemployment that we saw in 2019. So not only do I have this average inflation targeting framework, but just 
Personally, I'm going to look very skeptical on arguments to raise interest rates as long as weird shit is happening in terms of relative demand, right? That if a plausible explanation is this is going to work itself out, I'm going to be disposed to wait and see, right? Like, I think that would be a good signal to business owners as they start thinking about what's going on in the future. You know, the economy is going to chug. And if they have some thought, right? Like there's a lot of empty storefronts in my neighborhood right now that used to be restaurants. And as far as I know, like the kitchen, like they're still set up to be restaurants. It should not be that hard to reopen new restaurants in them, but it's a risky proposition. And like people don't want to lose their shirts after all this. And you want a clear signal to people that's like, if you have some money and you have experience owning restaurants and you know an unemployed chef, and like you see a vacant storefront, like just go do it, right? Like, you know, like don't don't worry about it. Like everybody's gonna be back eating out. I mean, again, not next week, but like when people are vaccinated, blah, 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 blah. And you can sort of give people guidance like that. And and to me, it's actually a little bit um I uh, understand why Biden likes the build back better slogan. Um, but if if you take it really seriously, it's economically counterproductive. Like you want you want to build back like exactly the way it was before, and then think about making it better, right? But the implication that like the Pete's around the corner from me, it's like no, we got to come up with something better, right? Then like uh, I don't know, you know, like just just build it back. Like it would not be because by far and away the easiest thing to do would be to turn the former coffee shop into a coffee shop again. And there's going to be a lot of additional unemployment if we sort of all sit around waiting for the coffee shop to be turned into a carbon capture facility or something like that. So, so Matt, what you're saying is the fundamentals of the economy are strong. <laughs> well, I don't know. I mean, it's just... <laughs> I, well, to, to your point about carbon capture, I think one thing I've heard from kind of the Warren wing of the party, which I think of as as they're very supportive of the Fed being pro-worker, but also sort of skeptical and kind of suspicious of the Fed's work as relates to providing credit to big businesses because they're they're skeptical of businesses and skeptical of perceived government support of big businesses, is how supportive the Fed should be to fossil fuel businesses that are trying to to build back better uh, or build back the same uh, in their case. Um, and I think there's there's some arguments about sort of should you be extending loans at all to businesses in that sector? Should you be extending loans on more favorable terms to green energy companies? I think this is a bit of a moot point because again, like the Fed really, really does not want itself to be seen as political. It's views decisions about like what kind of energy the country should use as decisions Congress and the president should make and not decisions it should make. But that's a case where my my intuitions are less strong than like the coffee shop example. Like, I don't know what percent unemployment and for how long I would accept to like shave a tenth of a percentage point off the temperature increase globally. But if that is in fact, a trade-off of some kind, it's less obvious to me which way I should go on that. But again, maybe a moot point because the Fed doesn't care. I do think that's that's relevant though, right? Because like, yes, like I think that if the Fed thinks of some politically, if the Fed thinks of some 
tractable, politically sustainable way to like create a new green economy. It's like, sure, like maybe they should, but they're not going to do that. Right. Um, and I think, I mean, this goes back to my point about Obama, but like just as an economic matter, like, yes, of course, things should be better. Right. Like from the executive <laughs> branch's viewpoint, but like you don't want to overcomplicate the thinking about like, job is better than no job. Open business is better than closed business. It's even more clear than than it was in 2009 that like there was nothing unsustainable about the economy as it existed in January 2020. We it was badly derailed by the virus. But if the virus had never struck, like a progressive would still say like, well, we want clean energy, we want unions, we want like all normal things, but it would be a transitional thing, not like we need an epic bout of destruction and then we're going to rebuild right. from the ashes. <laughs> and just the fact is, is that like, I think it's, a, I mean, really, like you just walk around everywhere and as terrible as this has been and as long as it's lasted, it has not lasted long enough that like our our capital stock has not crumbled away. Like the buildings are all still standing. I bet the stoves still work. Like the pots and pans are in storage somewhere. Like we can we can get this back, but it will take some doing, right? Like I was talking to an airline person and I guess you park airplanes in the desert for whatever reason when you mothball them. <laughs> but so well, because they don't corrode. I don't know. So they they're gonna have to like get pilots recertified by having them fly more. They're going to have to move the airplanes back to where they're supposed to be. Getting the whole thing back up to speed like takes a certain amount of time. And if you're signaling that, well, you're going to start raising interest rates and slowing the economy at the drop of a hat, that means that, well, if it's really expensive to like get some busted old 757 back in the air, you maybe don't bother with it. Whereas if you say to people like, no, like we're we're building back just the same <laughs> as quickly as possible, then everybody knows it's like, well, you got to do what it takes, right? To like just figure it out to get your company back off the ground, even if it wastes some money. And like you, I think you do like want to say that, that like we're going to get the virus under control and then we're going to get the economy going and then we're going to make things better. Yeah. It's funny you mentioned the desert. I was I was thinking about that because one of the things that apparently the 2008 crisis was supposed to have killed was Las Vegas. Oh yeah. Um that that was that was where the the housing boom was biggest and the housing crash was biggest and a lot of people thought it was sort of like a bubble city. Uh and Tony Sia who who recently passed away um I think was really visionary in seeing that doesn't have to be true. Las Vegas is a great city. It had a lot of potential and a lot of promise. And he poured a lot of resources into it. And a lot of other people poured a lot of resources into it. And it is still a great and, and prosperous city. And so, yeah, just just build it. <laughs> don't don't write stuff off. Still back the same. Um, OK, let's let's take a break and, and let's talk about um, disability. Support for the weeds comes from Hydro. Finding the time to exercise can be hard. But with the Hydro Rower, finding time for a 20-minute full-body workout can be a piece of cake. Hydro is a state-of-the-art, low-impact home rowing machine that's actually designed by rowers. Hydro caters to all fitness levels, and their classes are taught by Olympians and world-class athletes alike. Eric Maxwell, from the business side of things here at Vox, got to try it out. Here's what he thought. The Hydro definitely felt like a nice workout. It felt challenging, intuitive, it kind of felt natural. 
without being too strenuous. It was just nice to have a menu of options to find something super customized and just make it feel fun. This spring, you can join the growing rowing community at Hydro. You can head over to hydro.com and use code WEEDS to save up to $400 off your Hydro. That's H-Y-D-R-O-W.com, code WEEDS, to save up to $400. Hydro.com, code WEEDS. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com. Our paper today is on the long-term effect of childhood SSI benefits um, that Manasi Deshpande did. And this is actually very relevant to the Great Recession conversation. One of the things that happened when everybody had no jobs was they started scrambling to come up with some way to have money. One way you can get money in the United States is by qualifying for um, for SSI benefits uh, for, for disability. So you saw an in- increase in the roles that was clearly, it wasn't like there had been a massive change in everybody's health status. It was about the economic situation. Um, so then there was incredible discourse as to whether this meant we had to kick everybody off SSI benefits so that they could go get non-existent jobs. It turned out that, you know, SSI reform never happened after all of these uh, stories about it, which is good, because then as the economy got better, the number of disabled people just went down. And it is absolutely true that that's not a rational way to organize the welfare state, but it's just better for people to have money than than not have money. Um, This study looks at that through a particular angle. And she looks at some changes to eligibility that happened that wound up with people losing benefits. And she sort of takes it as a given that losing benefits is bad for you personally. Um, But she looks at the household level. What happens to your younger sibling if you lose benefits as a kid? And she shows that there is a sustained decrease in your income if your older sibling loses disability benefits when you're a kid, the implication being that it's a hand up, not a handout or something to to your family, right? That like you do better in life by growing up in a household that is less economically deprived, even though the program doesn't like do anything, quote unquote, right? It doesn't give you any skills. It doesn't address any structural barriers to whatever, but just your parents having more money and not like that much more money is meaningfully beneficial to you. And I think a lot of American thinking about the welfare state does not recognize this or acknowledge it, right? That like it actually, it takes this very um, incredibly incentives-based view of the world, right? That like if everyone just like had a quick kick in the pants, like they'd go do better. But instead you see the opposite, that like if people are coddled a little bit, they end up doing better. Yeah, that last point about kind of the moralization of the welfare state is really what really struck me about this paper because she doesn't take it as a given that getting as a, SSI as a child is good for you personally in the long run. As a matter of fact, like the whole kind of theoretical question here is 
is the benefit to your long-term outcome for because your parents got more money because you were on SSI, you know, how does that compare to any negative effects that being encouraged to seek disability status might have had on your educational attainment? Uh, and you know how that impacts long-term earnings. So by framing the question that way, she's taking the poss- possibility seriously that like the conservative side on the SSI debate was right and more generous SSI really does hurt the people it's trying to help, but puts it in a way that is both sympathetic and empirically testable and then empirically tests it and goes, mm, you know, she's very good at saying don't trust my exact numbers here. The point is to lay out parameters so that we can get better data later and then we can figure it out. But like preliminary data says, eh, it's just better to give people money. But it both frames the debate in a way you actually can have a response, you know, ha- have productive, like, okay, what are, what's the thing we're going to find out that's going to resolve what looks like a values dispute and provides a pretty clear answer to the empirical underpinning of the, of the moral, like, you just need a kick in the pants. Like, okay, either you normatively want to defend the kick in the pants theory of poverty reduction because you think it's what ought to be done to someone who has, you know, sinned enough to be in poverty, or you take the empirical view of, well, I thought that a kick in the pants would be more helpful. It turns out that the data on that is ambiguous at best, and therefore, let's figure out some other way. So yeah, I I love this paper for a number of reasons. One that does not bear on the merits of the paper, but I think is worth noting is that it's the first economics paper I've I've read about disability insurance by a disabled person. Uh, Despondi is uses a wheelchair, has been in a wheelchair since uh, she was a teenager, is an accomplished rock climber in in a sort of para rock climbing league, which I think is awesome, and. Obviously, like the the paper stands or falls on its its own merits, but there's a slogan in the disability rights world that that you should have nothing about us without us, and I, I think it motivates different questions and and brings different perspectives into to the profession. So I think that's great. The other more detailed reason uh, I'm really excited about this is uh, Despondi has a a large group of papers about SSI and and SSDI, its its sister program. And they together form this really nuanced picture of of how these incentives and sort of human capital effects fit together. There's one really interesting paper about what getting SSI or being rejected from SSI does for parents' work supply. So these are parents who are not disabled, who have a, a kid who they're applying for disability benefits for. And what she finds is that the conservative story is like true and then some for, for them. So she finds that the parents who get rejected from SSI pick up so many more work hours that they are made whole, that they they substitute completely away from SSI into doing more work. That might not necessarily be a good thing. It means they have less time to spend uh, as caretakers, but the incentives are, are like the big story there. And on, on the same token, she has, she has this other paper on what happens to the work supply of SSI recipients when they turn 18. And so that's a big moment for kids who are on SSI because you you often get reevaluated and you either keep on SSI or you get kicked off and are, are sort of thrown into the workforce. And she finds that immediately after kids who get kicked off replace about a third of their income. So there's an incentive story there. Like if you are not on, on SSI, you do behave differently. You are more likely to go get work. Does it make you whole? No. Does it provide as good a life for you as SSI? No. And I wrote a, a 
a piece about this a couple of years ago. And I think one thing I tried to get across is it can both be true that the story about incentives is real and that giving people money lowers their work. This is like trivially true about Social Security for old people. My grandfather worked less after he got Social Security because he is a retired person. But that's not the only parameter we care about. And we care about magnitudes and we care about sort of balancing these false positives of people who, sh- who are on disability insurance who arguably shouldn't be with the risk of false negatives of people who get kicked off, who shouldn't be kicked off. And it's never obvious where to draw that line. And I think Dishpandi's work as a whole suggests to me that, like, I'm sure SSDI and SSI don't draw that line in an exactly ideal way, but it's not as as non-ideal as I think some of the discourse around it suggested. I agree. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dylan, for joining us. Um, I also need to take a moment to recognize that this is going to be the last episode uh, produced by Jeffrey Geld, who has been with us here on The Weeds for a long time. He is uh, abandoning ship elevating uh, into into bigger and and better podcasting things except that our show <laughs> is the best show so it's it's not even possible um jeff has done great work has brought uh weeds production to i would say its highest level ever um we hope to replace him with somebody excellent uh one day in the near future but that is still a little bit tbd uh so uh, merry christmas and and farewell uh to jeff and and to all of you out there listening um The Weeds will be back on Friday. Hi, we're Visible. We're the wireless company with nothing to hide. Seriously. Hidden fees? We don't have them. Annual contracts? Not our thing. Great wireless on just one line? Now that's more like it. Get unlimited 5G data powered by Verizon for just $25 a month. Taxes and fees included. That's right. $25 a month? Every month. Sorry, hidden fees. We're just not that into you. Sometimes the choice is just visible. Switch today at visible.com. Rate with service on the Visible plan. For additional terms and network management practices, see visible.com.